though. But if you have your Bibles, turn to um, Colossians 1, verse 9. That's the text that's going to do our heavy lifting today. We, um, we are still in the process of going through Colossians. We're going through the whole book, verse 1 to verse last. And uh, I'm excited about this one. This is, a, this is a tougher passage, I think, for me personally. Um, so I hope the things that God has done in my heart, just in putting this together, He does in yours. Last week we um, looked at how the gospel grows deep in us and how it grows wide in the world, which is what Paul talks about when he starts this prayer with the Colossian church. We talked about what fruit looks like. We hear that word thrown around a lot, but what, what does fruit look like? What does fruit with seed look like? And, and, and as he talks to us about increasing in things like faith and hope and love, realistically, what does that mean to increase in hope? I mean, when you get down to it, brass tacks, what does it mean? Um, so we talked about that a little bit. In this passage, Paul finishes the prayer that he started, okay? And so we're going to go ahead and jump in Colossians 1.9. If you don't have a Bible, or you don't own one, or don't have one you're real crazy about or something like that, we have Bibles on that front table. Just grab one on your way out, and it's yours. You can keep it. Those are for free. But in Colossians 1, it says this, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. You know, when I was putting this together, like I said, I really had, some words are not very difficult wrestling matches for me. This one was. And whenever I was putting it together, it made me think of this old, crappy Ford Escort I had in college. It's like a 1990 whatever. It's right when the body style changed for you car guys, right? So it's not the old, old 80s Escort looking thing, but it was the new one with the seat belts that kind of go whether you want it to or not. Just kind of slides up on the thing. I had one of those. And I remember it broke down when I was in college, and I couldn't figure out what, what the problem was because I wasn't a car dude. And uh, when you're a college student, you're not really looking to fix, you're looking to patch. And so I took it to a buddy who was pretty good at patching, right? Trying to get things just to work. And so we popped the hood, and he looked at it, and he says, You know what your problem is? Those are golden words. You know what your problem is? I said, No, I don't. I need to know, <laughs> I need to know what my problem is. That's why I'm bringing it to you. Well, you need this. And it was some filter. I don't know how many filters a car really needs, but it was one of the many filters I'd never even heard of. So I run to AutoZone. Given the make and model, they give me the filter, we run back, we slam it in, it doesn't start. And then he's like, well, that's all I knew, you know, you're, you're on your own. But here's the number of a guy that might be able to fix it. So I drag it over there. This guy pops the hood, looks at it. You know what your problem is, Luke? No. 
I don't know what my problem is. Four guys. I went from dude to dude to dude. And I was back and forth from AutoZone. I mean, it got to where they knew who I was. They knew exactly who I was. They already had the make and model banged into the computer. I was putting filters and flux capacitors and whatever, wire, harness, whatever, trying to get this thing to work. Finally got it to work. But when I was thinking about that story, because the deal is, is I think a lot of times we try as Christians to really get our behavior to change. And we don't know what to do. We don't know what to add to get it to work. And so we just feel like we're going to to the, the auto zone to get this book or this teaching or this sermon or whatever and try to add it to our life to get our behavior to change, to get our lives to start, to get things to be fixed. And we always feel like we're just one book away. Or one teaching away, or one boyfriend away, or one class away, or one pastor away, or one whatever away of of getting the car, the proverbial car, started so that we can carry on with our life. In this, Paul is, he is finishing, he is finishing his prayer in verse 9. And this is the one that we started last week. And what he's doing is he's, he's concerned about how these people are getting their wisdom, how they're getting their, their tank filled. Because he, I mean, he planted this church, or he planted the guy that planted the church, we can say that. So he's kind of a father figure, and fathers should be concerned about what their kids are getting to make them wise or to make them understanding. We should be concerned about what's filling our kids' tanks, and Paul's no different. He's looking at a church, and he's wondering what is being put into these young Colossians, right? In verse 10, it says this, He prays that we may be filled with the knowing of what God's will is. Not fill ourselves. That's very key. That's a passive phrase right there. His prayer is that they would be filled. Not that they would fill themselves. And that it would be in all spiritual wisdom. Not man's wisdom, but spiritual wisdom and understanding. You know, I was thinking about God's will. What that looks like. And you know, world religions, forever had been trying to find what God's will is, as if it was lost. And they all, they all say that they have the answer of what God's will is. And so it's almost as if God has taken His will and shoved it under a rock. And then world religions just basically start kicking over rocks, trying to find God's will. What is God's will? As if you, know, as if you needed some help to find it, as if it wasn't clearly given to us. And only the holiest people in each religion really have the decoder ring, right? They tell you, this is God's will. You have to listen to me because I'm the dude. I'm the dude above all the other dudes. And I'm here to tell you, I'm the Joseph Smith. I'm the Billy Graham. I'm the whatever. Whatever pinnacle figure you could think of, a lot of times as people on earth, we look at them and say, they have it figured out. They know what God's will is. I can never know unless I increase in my levels of understanding to match them. That's what it feels like sometimes. This this is what was pressing in on Colossae. This idea that there are levels of understanding. That there are degrees of spiritual wisdom. It was starting to seep in. You had these, like I said a couple weeks ago, these hippies on one side, you know. Colossi had its hippies just like Knoxville or any other place. They had these hippies and it was more of this mystical goo that was kind of seeping in. It was all about knowing which angels to pray to. It was all about just deep philosophy that was coming in from the east. And then on the other side, you didn't have the hippies, you had the legalists, the stalwarts. They had works, and they had law, and they were trying to cram it in. And you had all this stuff just pressing in from every angle on this young church, trying to say, this is wisdom, you need to listen to this. You need to listen to what I'm saying. I'm going to fix your problem. I'm going to get your car started. 
This has been going on for a long time. Paul prays here that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and in all understanding. We looked at this last week, this one passage last week. I like how you see words like knowledge, spiritual wisdom, understanding. That's vocabulary that the people back then knew. That was very mystical vocabulary. You know, we have words today with like rhythm, organic. You know, these are words today that we use that, that kind of had the same feel that they had back then with these words. And like I said last time, he was kind of taking his first jab to let them know, I know your vocabulary. I'm actually going to speak to you in your vocabulary, which is what we do today as Christians, hopefully, right? If you're on mission, if you're a good missionary, you learn the culture's language and you speak to them according to their culture without holding their values. This is what Paul was doing. But he was saying there is a better way to get good wisdom. And it's spiritual wisdom. And you're going to be filled with it. You can't reveal it to yourself. He shows us that this wisdom, this spiritual wisdom, this understanding, God's will, what it gives birth to is good behavior. Good behavior. It says this. Actually, it looks a lot more like the behavior that Jesus had. It looked very Christ-like says that he lived a life worthy of the Lord. That's what Christ did. He lived a life that was worthy of the Lord. It says that he was fully pleasing to him in the Bible. That's what it says here. It says to bear fruit in every good work is a piece of our behavior. Well, that's what Jesus Christ did. He did all of those things. And in verse 11, I'm just flying through this to give you guys a thumbnail sketch of what this is. Verse 11, Paul shows his desire that God's power and might would be the fuel with how they encounter patience and endurance. Not their might, but his might. That's kind of weird, Luke. How does that even work? How do you let God's might come through you to be better at endurance and better at patience? How does that work? You know, there's a big difference between doing something on your own strength and doing something on the Lord's strength. So here it is in this short, tiny little passage we see for the second time a passive thing being done. You are being filled with the knowledge of God's will, and spiritual wisdom and understanding, and you are being empowered to do things that are very, very, very difficult to do. Right? This is what you see. And then in verse 12 through 14, he finishes with this big sweeping gospel pronunciation. He talks about us being redeemed. Talks about us being transferred. Talks about us being qualified. And these were all angles to the cross. I'm a big fan of this. I love... All the different angles that the cross of Christ has. If you were to slap the cross right in the middle of a big beautiful diamond, depending on where you're looking at that cross, through the diamond, it's going to show a different angle, a different beauty. It's the same cross. It's the same truth. But there's something different. There's three distinct angles in this. Being transferred, redeemed, and qualified. And so then he talks about that and and how all of this even connects. It's a very complex passage. But the very simple things, as complex as this is, the very simple things I want to look at are this. We are filled with the knowledge of God's will. We do not fill ourselves. And this is God's grace to us. Grace, very simply, very simply, is God doing something very beautiful in you, through you, and with you, but totally despite you. Totally despite your efforts, your works, your performance, your behavior, that is God's grace. It's something that is impossible to be earned. It's totally despite you. Right? That's what it means. To be filled with God's will, the knowledge of His will, and spiritual wisdom, that is a grace. Another thing I want to look at is the power to endure and be patient. 
with joy, it's also a grace. He's doing it through us, totally despite us. Some of you have had some very, very big seasons where you've needed to be patient or you've needed to endure and you know how hard it is to do it in joy. It's easy to do it for like one day, right? You could do it with a smiley face for one day. But when the wife is sick for three days, right? When the kids are sick for two weeks, when the job stinks for the third month in a row, it's a little bit harder to do it with fullness of joy. He talks about that, and I'm glad he does. And then the other thing I want to look at is that just behaving better, it comes by believing better. We don't behave very well. I don't. And the places where I don't behave well are places where my believing and understanding is cracked. That's where it happens. You want to behave better? You want to do that? It takes better believing. And that is tied to the gospel. I'm going to look at that. But in verse 9, this very beautiful thing that happens passively. You guys out there sitting in the chairs right now, being filled with the knowledge of God's will. As broken people, as skin and bones and hair and teeth and zits and just carnal and just we're just rough creation, we can't grab spiritual things and make them our own. They're given to us. God's actually the one that does the heavy lifting when it comes to spiritual revelation. We can't do that. It is a total grace to us. Anything you understand, sitting here today, on this day, anything that you know that is good, that is correct, that is orthodox, that is straight thinking, that is nice, that is kind, it came from God's hand. You're just not that smart. I'm not either. We're not that good. We're not that smart. We're not that wise. That stuff is given to us. I know what some of you are thinking. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Our answer to God flipping the switch in those aha moments. Any of you ever had just an aha moment where you're sitting there and something opens up, radically takes a big boulder in your life and just moves it. And you sit there and you're like, I get it now. I get it now. It's almost like a light switch was flipped and all the roaches of misunderstanding and confusion just leave and you can just see clearly now it's like you're alive to this scripture or understanding or something like that that is a moment for thanksgiving that's not a moment for self-congratulations you didn't flip that switch he did it's a grace to you yeah but Luke I read books and I listen to sermons and I've got six podcasts and they're all good And they're all big pastors. And I surround myself. And the Bible says, Luke, to collect wisdom. To gather wisdom around yourself. It does. That's true. But revelation is a spiritual matter. Revelatory things happen by God's hand. It's the difference between being surrounded by something and internalizing something. Listen, the Pharisees were surrounded by good teaching, were they not? They were surrounded by an entire Old Testament. All of it pointed to Christ. Every single part of the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ on the cross. It does. It's just the way it works. The whole Bible, the whole climactic storyline and arc of what we see in the Scripture points to one magnificent moment on the cross. These guys were bathing in it from a young age had the first five books memorized. They were surrounded by the best podcasts, the best books, the best teaching, but they could not internalize it. It was not really spiritually totally revealed to them. That's why you see things like this. I got this is out of Luke 8, but you can find this like six different times in the Gospels. It's not on there, so don't worry about it. It says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, Jesus says to his disciples. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see... And hearing, they may not understand. 
We are dependent on God to show us His will. We are utterly and totally dependent on that. He has a will, a direction, an intent, a desire, a flow, an object, focus, a goal. He has it. And the only way you're ever going to know it is if He reveals it to you. The good news is He's already revealed it to us, right? He's already gone through the the difficult process of revealing very much of His will to us. You know, I love the idea that God God inspires this loose connection of men spread out across hundreds of years to hear His will, to be inspired, to put it on paper in letters to churches or in dreams or in historical accounts or chronologues that they could be compiled to be called the Bible that you can read. And then God would not inspire you, right? But illuminate the scripture for you to understand. That is all God's grace. It's all revelation to us. In His will, it's very clearly seen in scripture. It's not really a mystery for us, is it? We see things very, very, very clearly. We don't need a decoder ring. We have it in the Bible. Now, I think a lot of times we miss this. Uh, Years and years of campus ministry... And just being in the ministry long enough, I will tell you the number one question I get from people under the age of 26 is what is God's will for my life? What is my purpose here on earth? What is God's will for me? It took me a long time to figure out why why is that the number one question? But it is. The deal is this. When a person before Christ is walking the earth, they're really on their own will and their own purpose. When someone is radically rescued and born again, that is snatched away. It's obliterated. I had an agenda as a reprobate, as a dude very far from God, not wanting anything to do with God or Christianity or any of that stuff. I had my own agenda. I had my own goals. I had my own plan figured out, my own will, and I had full knowledge of what my will was going to produce. Right? I knew what it was all about. God comes in and smashes it, just obliterates it. And what happened was, is I didn't know anything. I was kind of a knucklehead, so I was like, oh, okay, so I can't do this anymore, and I don't want to do that anymore, and I do want to do this anymore, but now oh, that will that I was really a slave to, I don't know what to replace it with. I don't have a will anymore. I think I'm supposed to do something, but I don't know what it is. And so we always ask ourselves, what is God's will for my life? Now, that's a personal will, but I will tell you, you'll never understand what God's will is for you personally unless you understand what God's will is generally. If you don't understand what His will is in all of creation, in human history, you'll never even get a glimpse at what yours is. That's foundational. That's basic. That's a building block, right? So this is what we see. Don't, I'm going I'm to fly through these. They're not even on there, I don't think. Romans 12, it says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. First Thessalonians, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion and the lust that the Gentiles do. One chapter later, This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, that you would rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. 1 Peter 2, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It goes on and on. There's several times. Those are just a few real quick ones I pulled out. This is the will of God. This is the will of God. This is the will of God. And if you just stack them all out and pull it out, 
we see that God's will is perfect, it's discerned through a renewed heart, full of rejoicing, it's full of prayer, giving thanks, growing, purity, temperance, discipline, doing good. It's all part of God's will. He's very clear. He's very clear. We are not one of the world religions that are still kicking over rocks, trying to figure out what God's will is. He's incredibly crystal clear with us. Not only that, not only that, where he's obvious, you have the storyline of what God has done since the beginning of beginnings to the end of ends. You have his will displayed before us. And the fact that you have a creation, right, where man broke it. Mankind was not able to image God correctly. He broke creation. So you started to have a a, a downward spiral. And then God comes in and creates a nation. To what? To image Him. You will be a nation called my own. The, the, The nation couldn't even image Him. It was unable to do so. Eventually He brings a king. Eventually He comes to earth and puts on skin, breathes our air, and says, I can image God. And He does. He images God. And then you have... Recreation, which is waiting for us as we'll be glorified as sons and daughters of the Most High King. All of this beautiful story, any story you see in a movie or a book, it just, it's a rip-off of the storyline of the Bible. It is. Where you have a beginning, you have a fall, you have the climax, and you have the, the solution in the end. The recreation, which is usually always better than the beginning. So you can't find a movie that doesn't really, not a good one, that doesn't really follow that, that storyline some way, shape, or form. We have God's will for us in that. God's will is that He would collect and renovate all of creation that at one time was broken to fully image and glorify Him. We have God's will right before us. It's a very beautiful thing. Now, your personal will does fit in there somewhere. And we don't have time to talk about that today. I would love to. That's a whole different sermon. You do have a will, or not a will. God has a specific will for you that doesn't look very much like the person sitting next to you. It doesn't. And we've talked about this before several times. What I want to show you right now in this teaching, the lifting that this passage does, is that if it doesn't fit in with God's overarching will, it's most likely not God's will for your life either. It has to mimic it, look like it. It has to smell like it a little bit. We talked about this with mission, when we talked about being on mission. That if you're on a mission that doesn't really look like God's mission, it's some private mission that's not really a good one, it's kind of irrelevant. It has to fit in with His mission for it to be a relevant mission. This is kind of the same thing. And so, he talks about being filled with this knowledge of God's will. And to be filled with something is really to be guided and steered by it, right? You're filled with emotion... What does that mean? It means that you're guided by it. You're directed by it. Are you filled with pain? You know, I become a big baby. Right? So when I'm a big baby, when I become full of pain, what's steering me? The pain. I'm full of it. Right? That's what we have. But I want to show you in this, when we're filled with something, it steers our behavior. It does. It steers our behavior. This is true in any belief system. Take any belief system that you could think of that is absent God. So evolution, macroevolution, um, secular humanism, atheism, um, situational ethics that deny all types of static morality, any of those things say that's a system or within a system that says there is no such thing as God. Therefore, there is no such thing as morality. Therefore, there's no such thing as any right that's ultimate or wrong that's ultimate. If you have that belief structure that's very heavy, and that's the prism that you see reality through, how do you think that's going to affect your behavior? I mean, you might try to act nice. 
but eventually the strongest is going to survive. You do have something like Nazi Germany. You have something that says, who can tell me no? We're just doing what we were created to do as animals. Your belief structure will affect your, your behavior. And this is what Paul was painfully aware of. This is what Paul was really struggling with. Because he knew that there was beliefs starting to creep in on the Colossian church. And he knew that it was just a matter of time before their behavior went way off and just sprayed left. They were having their beliefs influenced. Do you have Colossians 2.20 on there? We'll do this in a few weeks. I can't wait to do this one. But it says this in the, in the 20th verse of the second chapter. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Referring to things that all, that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings... These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is it right here for you in words. He's talking to a church that's starting to believe a little crooked, and now they're behaving a little crooked. He's like, why are you guys doing this thing where you're not tasting, not touching, not enjoying the grace and the freedom that God has given you? You're like trying to be tough on your bodies to feel more spiritual? Why on earth are you doing that? Christ has freed you. And their answer would be, well, because this dude came in and he started teaching it and it sounded good. This heretic came in and he's got a good preaching. I mean, he's got a good podcast and a good book. And we listened to him and he said that if you didn't eat pork or if you didn't drink beer or if you didn't do this, if you did all of those things, then you could be more holy. And so we're doing those things. He's saying, well, why are you doing that? Your belief is affecting your behavior. It's a little bit of what we see. I will tell you right now, as a Christian, as you grow, most, the lion's share of your growth will depend on what you believe and how much unbelief you can put down. That's where a lot of your growth is. It will affect your behavior. It's called orthodoxy. In orthodontics, you have straight teeth. Uh, orthopedics, you have straight bones. Orthodoxy is just straight doctrine, straight thinking. Right? The scholars of old would say that orthodoxy gives birth to orthopraxy, which is practice practical things. Sometimes our praxy is not very orthodox, but whenever we fix the way that we think and understand the cross and our relationship and our arms grasp of the cross being right there with us, it will affect our behavior. In verse 11 it says this, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy. Here it is again, being passive. Not just are you filled, you're being motored. Powered by God's grace. It's a, different, it's a different patience and a different endurance. Understand, endurance is the idea of this. Endurance is dealing with tough times. Those words aren't the same. They're not synonyms. Endurance is the understanding that times are tough and you're going to get through it. You're going to put the faculties together to make it through and endure. And he says, with all fullness of joy, right? You're going to do that. Patience is dealing with tough people, right? Totally different. Endurance, sickness. I'm always sick, having to endure that. Someone's always sick. Work is jacked up. Work doesn't give me any, any hope of getting any better, you know? The hours will always be long. I, it just, you're trying to endure things. Patience is your wife, your husband. Patience is people in community. As we start to do community more and more and more, you're going to get more impatient with the people around you because some of you are weird, right? Some of you are hard to deal with. 
That takes patience. Now to do it with joy, this is the, this is the thing, right? Like I said earlier, it's easy to do it and put a smile on your face just until you get through that evening. And then on the way home, you can blast that dude when it's just you and your wife in the car, right? But you could smile your way through the meeting. That is not patience with joy, right? That's not endurance with joy. Joy, is a, joy doesn't always mean happiness. We usually think joy means happiness. Joy is a deep, settling peace about you. You can be joyful and not look very happy. The Bible says that for the joy set before him, Jesus went to the cross enduring the shame which it was going to bring to him. He wasn't telling jokes on the way to the cross. It wasn't like a deep happiness. He wasn't just oozing and dancing on the way to the cross, but he had a joy in him. Why? It's for what was set before him. He understood what was going to happen right before his eyes. Right? So it's the same thing. So what does that mean for us? Joy, joy, you, having joy in all patience and endurance, that's two things. It's both impossible and it's valuable. It makes your endurance and your patience very valuable. It does. Because there's a difference between being patient with someone and being patient with someone and gritting your teeth. Right? There's a difference between enduring a situation and being a big baby about it the whole time. You know? There's a difference. It's valuable when joy is attached to it. It's also impossible. Because who can really do that for very long? Some of you folks are very patient. Some of you are patient. In some things, I feel like I could be patient, but not for very long. I want it my way eventually. And I'm going to bear with you for a little while, but if you keep pushing, I'm going to lose my cool. I'll try not to, and I'll tell you I'm sorry when I'm done, but that's the way it's going to go. You know what I'm saying? It's difficult for me to wear that joy the whole time through. It's very difficult. It's very valuable. So, this seems very passive. Almost like we don't do anything. We just sit, we receive his knowledge, we just sit and let him power us. We don't do anything. We just sit, we're just passive people. That's what it feels like. He does it all through us, and I think he does that so that we can't boast. We can't boast. Of course we do things. I mean, I spent last week talking about that, how it says to make every effort to do these things. Christianity is not a life of sitting. It's a, it's a life of putting to death the flesh and putting to death our unbelief. There's a lot of work to be done in our Christian life. But it's done within the stature of the cross, not outside the stature of the cross. And so, as we look at this, it's so that we cannot boast. And boasting is a problem we have, isn't it? Even, if, even when you don't know that you're boasting, you can be. You know, someone comes up and, man, you are really... You're such an encouraging person, you know. I just watched you. You're so encouraging. And, well, thanks. Some say it's a gift I have, you know. You put the schmooze on, and you're all of a sudden you're just schmooze. You got it all figured out, you know. Grace is, yeah, I am pretty encouraging. Hey, it's pretty observant for you to see that, that I'm encouraging like I am. You know, you're right. And you don't even know you're boasting, but you are your boasting. The only reason that you're even encouraging is because God has kissed you with the ability to be encouraging. The only reason that you can endure and be patient or be a good speaker or be good on a guitar or be good at anything is because God has enabled you to do that. Where is the room to boast? Where is the room to boast? Same thing with being filled with God's knowledge. The knowledge of God's will and spiritual wisdom and understanding. Same thing with being patient and enduring with all joy. These are things that we cannot do ourselves. We cannot make those things happen. We can't reveal God to ourselves. We can't be patient with all joy without Him doing it through us. Our understanding comes from God. Our power comes from God. Hey, our salvation comes from God. So it makes sense, doesn't it? 
Why? So that we wouldn't boast. It says this in Ephesians 2. I think you have that one. It says, For by grace you have been saved. Now listen, you've heard this a million times. Try to hear it through new ears. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then it goes on. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Isn't it crazy? He gifts us with salvation. He gifts us with knowledge. He gifts us with ability. He gifts us with even the works that we're supposed to do. It's all done by his hand. So Luke, what are you saying? Are you saying we're puppets? You're saying we just kind of force gump our way through life and we just kind of, I don't know. I mean, what are you saying? We're not puppets. I mean, you guys made a decision to come this morning. There wasn't any part of you that stuck a leg out of bed and thought, oh, I don't want to go. What's going on with me? I, I didn't want to move my leg, but it just moved, you know? And I'm, What's going on with me? You, you weren't compelled to do anything outside of what you wanted to do. The decisions you make are decisions that you wanted to make. They are. You weren't made to do anything. You decided. If you're a son or a daughter of the king, you are the one that says, me. I want to follow God with all of my life. I say no to sin. I say no to my old life. You're the one that did that. You raised your hand and did that. But what you need to know is God did it. (laughs) I don't understand how all that fits together yet. I probably won't ever. But all I know is this. God chose you, gifted you, pulled your heart of stone out before he put a heart of flesh in, and even enabled you to even see that you were screwed up. Even your fact, even the moment where you looked at your life and said, Oh, I messed up. Screwed up. I can't fix this anymore. Your ability to even say that was gifted to you. That's how good God is. He's really good. But we do do things. We put down sin. We pursue God's will as it's already revealed to us. We glorify Him as a walking image of who He is. Individually and corporately. Right? We worship Him with every aspect of our lives. We enjoy the free grace that abounds. These are things that we do. And then He finishes with this. And this is where He connects it all. For at least this little passage right here. This little part. He is finishing a chunk of the letter. Next week He starts a new one. Um, But this is kind of the finishing of a thought. As much as Paul is able to finish thoughts. Paul's not very good at finishing thoughts. He kind of runs from one to the other, you know. But as best as Paul could do, this is the finishing of a thought. It says this, that we were both made adequate, qualified. That's what that word means. When he says that you were qualified in Christ, it means that you were made adequate. That's because originally you were spiritually dead and you were very inadequate. I was. Very inadequate. For God's demands. You know, I felt like, you know, you go to the, the fair, or not the fair, they don't really do these, but like big amusement parks do these. You stand in line for the roller coaster, and right before you get on, they have that like plaque with the metric on it, and you like stand your kid up to it, and if he's so tall, he can get on it. They put that right before you get on. They need to put that back before you get in the line, but they put it right before you get on. And so you're there with your kid. <laughs> and I remember the first time I did that with one of my kids, probably, I don't know who, but we were standing there, and, she, and either he or she, I think it was Tara, she was too short. And I felt like, oh, bad parents. You know, here I am. Everyone's probably thinking, bad parent. You're going to put your little girl on that ride? My gosh, she's already short of the line. She's not even close to adequate. And so I looked at that, and I thought, yeah, she's not adequate. But that's how I feel sometimes. And that how you could feel? You feel like you're on this cosmic roller coaster where the line is way up here and you're this midget looking up and you're thinking, I can't get on this ride, you know? I'm not adequate. 
And the fact is, is you're not. And you see what Christ did on the cross, he didn't just improve you or make you better so that you could grow up to the line. He replaced you. He replaced you. He didn't just turbo boost you. That's not what the cross did. He stood in your place, took your unrighteousness, while he gave you his righteousness, he gave you the credit for a perfect life lived, and took your sleeves and your jacked upness like he did mine, and he swapped us. He replaced us. That's what it means to be adequate. Right? And then he goes on. And he says that we were transferred. That's military language. Transferred from one dominion to another kingdom. Back then, if you lost a battle in a kingdom, you were probably you were probably done. What they would do is the winning armies would come in and take the people and take the whole town out of there. They'd leave it like a ghost town with nothing but like old women and children to, to take care of it and keep the animals out or whatever. I don't know. But what they did is they'd take a bunch of people out. That's what happened to Israel whenever they were beaten and they were just spread throughout the whole land. This is what this is talking about. We were moved corporately as God's people from one dominion to God's kingdom. That was a transfer that was made from a military might. One where Christ can say, as king, I have won and I have defeated sin and death. You belong to me. You belong in my kingdom. A new currency, a new flag, a new language. You have a new name. No more danger for you. You were transferred from one to the other. That's what that's talking about. And then redeemed. That's special language too. The angle. These are the angles I was talking about. The angle of redemption. You hear that word a lot like in Exodus. The people of Exodus were redeemed. Redemption, think, think uh, like slavery. Think emancipation. Whenever you were redeemed, you were emancipated. Someone play, they, they paid a slave price to free you from slavery. That's what was done for us. We were redeemed. Right? It's beautiful language when you really look back at the Old Testament because you have people that were in slavery right? in Egypt. God sent them through the water and then they became a new nation. That's, real, that's, a, that's a huge picture for us. That you could be in slavery through the water, which is a symbol of baptism, and then become a new nation. There was newness on the other side of that salvation for them. Right? That's what that is talking about. That is redemption. So that happened to you. So you were transferred, redeemed, made adequate. All of this without you doing anything. You cannot lift spiritual stones. You cannot create spiritual houses. You cannot give spiritual thoughts. God does that for you. He does that for you. Now, so what? So what does all this mean? I'm finishing. What does all this mean? How does this apply to your normal, to your everyday? Some of you, like me, I'm with you. Some of you stink at getting your behavior to change. You can't get the car started. It's tough. You're adding things to it. It won't start. Filters, whatever. It's not starting. Some of you cannot get your behavior to change. It's because your beliefs are flawed. Somewhere inside, there's something about God's will, something about God's will for you, something about Him, His love for you, the cross that is cracked, that is damaged, scuffed, causing your beliefs to be so destructed that you cannot see correctly enough to even behave correctly. And you keep trying to buy things and change things and shift things and it's just not working for you. Even books aren't helping. Hey, even sermons aren't helping. Even churches aren't helping. And you cannot figure out how to roll the engine over and get it going. How to change your behavior. Nothing seems to work. 
I will tell you first and foremost, your behavior will not change until you see yourself as adequate, transferred, redeemed, emancipated, atoned, forgiven, justified, sanctified, adopted, grafted in, one, until you see yourself as collected, prized, protected, saved, rescued, restored, renovated, and made new. You have to see yourself how Christ sees you. You have to see yourself how God sees you. Most of what Christians do, this is what Tolian Chavijan says, I really love this statement. He says, what most Christians do when they try to grow is they try to add things that they think they don't have. They're trying to collect things and just stick them to themselves. A fuel filter here, a wiring harness here. Trying to get it to work. Instead of just realizing or reminding themselves they have everything. They're buried in Christ, as it says in Colossians. There's nothing that they don't have at the ability of their hands. Because God is the one through His grace that gifts all these things. Some of you, like me, don't have very good gospel belief. And so we will not, friends, have very good gospel behavior. (laughs) It comes from the other. One gives birth to the other. Some of you, like me, are looking for the fix in books and sermons. This is something that I struggle with, right? Books and sermons. And we just hope that they'll fix us, but they're not going to. I'm not against books. I love books. I have more than many of you, right? I read them all the time. I cannot diet on books alone. I cannot diet on sermons alone. This is something that my pastor challenged me to do in Tampa that was really hard because I was going through a stage where I wasn't sure about what I believed. And so I'm just grabbing from all these different guys. I mean, I was listening to four or five messages a day. Sermons a day. So you do the math. That's like 40 sermons a week is what I was chewing through. Reading through books at just a stupid pace. And he said, Luke, I tell you what. Why don't you try for one month not reading anything or listening to anything but the Bible? And being the proud young man that I was, I said, well, sure. Okay. It's easy. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. What I learned is I started developing a crutch. And the crutch was leaning on the opinions, the teachings, and the revelations that came to other men. And not even really putting myself in the posture that God could do the same for me. That God could show something to me. That He could spiritually reveal something to me. That He could spiritually empower me to do something. I always thought that there was some teaching I just needed to understand. And other people had all the keys, and I needed to get it. But listen, I'm not talking about not listening to sermons or books. I'm giving you a sermon right now. I'm talking to you right now. I love books. We have them on the back table. I'm all for books. But listen, if books become your crutch, if that happens, you're in big trouble. Because all it takes is one bad book. All it takes is one squirrely message. And you end up looking like the dudes in Colossae. Heretics seeping in and giving weird things, telling you what it means to be wise. What it means to have God's will. You know, when I was in physical therapy, when I worked in physical therapy, one of the things we would always try to do is get people to understand how quick they can start shifting weight from crutches to feet. They'd be like, after like a serious injury, they'd be not what's called non-weight bearing. And so it'd be no weight on that foot at all. But that's when they were at their most precarious place. That's when all the slips and falls, because they're putting so much weight on these crutches. And all it takes is a slippery floor or a junky crutch. I mean, they're not made very well, you know. They're cheap. And so all it takes is something to go, and they're on their face. And a lot of times we develop these crutches, even ones that we agree with, even ones that we love, but we've never really postured ourselves in a place where we are even willing to hear from God. We are waiting for others around us to hear from God. But let me tell you, God did not create you that way. 
He does this very beautiful revelatory thing in showing you things. Now, the thing that he shows you would and should line up with the Word of God. But you can hear from God yourself. He will speak to you. There is a point of humility. There is a point of humility where we understand that we cannot fix ourselves. That's where God's grace comes in. And that we cannot lift the big spiritual boulders. But we need Jesus to fill us. We need Jesus to empower us. We need Him to save us every day. We need Him to save us. So my biggest concern for you is this. In this message, as I look at what Paul was talking about, as I look at what he was giving to the Colossian church, I could feel myself in that church a little bit. It's very easy, it's very easy for me to rely on all the spiritual work that has been done in other men and women and rely on that so much that I find my, my prayer time shrinking, getting less dependent. Why do I? I'm not depending on God anymore because I can depend on this guy. He's the one depending on God. I could just get it from him, so I'm not going to be dependent on God. We would never say that, but we do that. I would find that happening. My caution to you, my caution to you is this. Don't ever put yourself at a place. I don't care how many good teachers are around you. I don't care if we have 19 of the best pastors in the world up here that all have great doctrine. I don't care about any of that. I don't care about the books on your library. I don't, I don't care about any of that. What, the one thing I want to say, don't ever put yourself at a place where you're not desperate for God to show you things, to reveal things to you. Don't ever do that. Or you'll end up like Colossi, always wondering what's a heresy, always looking for the better teacher, and always looking for that right car part that will work so you can finally get your behavior changed. It doesn't work that way. So that's what I see there, and that's the caution I have for you. So we're going to go, Kevin, are you here, bud? Is we're going to start and we're going to, the communion over here, just so you know, it gives us a chance to take what symbolizes the broken body and the spilt blood of Christ and worship him understanding that even with what we just heard, that death to us was a gift for us. It was God's grace to us. So as you take that with your family, take it with your roommate, with your wife, um, just have the freedom that you want over the next couple songs to take that. Worship God, but really ask Him. Ask Him to assess your desperation. How desperate are you right now to really hear from God, to truly be changed to let him maneuver those big boulders in your life. These are the questions you need to be asking yourself. As he starts putting his finger on things that are uncomfortable to you, even in this time now, just yield under it. Just yield under it. Just be thankful that God loves you so much, he's unwilling for you to walk out one more day unchanged. That's God's gift to you. So let me pray for you. Go ahead and stand, and I'm going to pray for you. Father, I thank you for your gift to me, God, that you... You know, Lord, that the best wisdom I can come up with, it stinks. I'm not very wise. I'm not even very smart with basic things. <laughs> Much less spiritual things. But Father, you do that for us. And Lord, I thank you that you give me the power to behave correctly. God, because I stink at that too. And I'm, I'm mean to my wife. I'm short with my kids. I can be, I can be a jerk, God. And Lord, a lot of times it's because I'm relying on my own strength and not your power and your might to come through me. I think I, I, think I need to yield more under you, Lord, as you show me that. So help, help me, help us, Father, see where we are not desperate. Help us see where we are just adding things, hoping that some book will finally be the magic bullet. Some sermon will finally just push us over the edge. 
But God, the truth is, is it's you speaking through that book. It's you speaking through that sermon that's pushing us over the edge. You are the one that does that. So Lord, we thank you. Show us where we are not desperate. Show us where we do not believe that we would yield even everything and call you Lord, Father.